This is Our Legacy, changing what it means to be blind in New South Wales and the ACT. And as those who are involved in causing and promoting change know, it's not easy, and it often comes at a cost to the change agents. Hello, I'm Angela Caterns, and in this podcast series, you'll hear the voices and stories of people who are blind or vision impaired, and how they've changed what it means to be blind in New South Wales and the ACT. You'll hear about their lives, about the importance of mentoring and peer support, about the places that meant so much to them, and about some of the campaigns for change on which they worked. You'll hear memories from the 1950s to the early 2000s, from some of the men and women who simply wanted to make things better. Episode 4, Our Organisations and Their Advocacy. Because the winds are change Blindness is really an information disability. And I think when we think about it, really information is, is the really the crux of our whole disability because physically we have no... We're, we're not unable to do anything that a sighted person does. I know some people with a vision impairment do have other disabilities, but vision impairment as such doesn't really restrict us from doing anything other than the lack of information. Barry Chapman has been a stalwart of both Blind Citizens Australia and the Association of Blind Citizens. Usually taking on the treasurer's role, he's always there when a job needs to be done. He won the David Blythe Award for his continued commitment. When I think about information, it's not really information only in the sense of being able to read. It's information like the the only reason we can't drive a car, like a standard car like anyone else, is that we don't know when to turn, when to stop and and so on. But physically we can turn the wheel, we can press the accelerator, we can press on the brake, we can do anything the same as a sighted person except that we're lacking that information. That's that's really what it comes down to. So basically we, we are just like anyone else. We aren't uh, broken. We just lack the information in certain areas and the thing is we need to make sure that we can do what can be done and what needs to be done to get access to that information in whatever way is possible. I joined BCA at the age of 19. Appreciating early on the value of peer support from other people who are blind or vision impaired, Susan Thompson joined Blind Citizens Australia as a young woman. She has, in turn, provided that support to others and is a long-standing and committed member. For many years, her voice was familiar to the listeners of Soundabout. And I remember walking into my first meeting and there was these middle-aged men there kind of one of you plugged into the radio listening to the football and talking about, you know, trying to get services from the blindness agencies improved for us? Um, I joined Blind Citizens Australia in the mid-80s. I can't recall the exact year. I was trying to think of this before. But it seems to have been since ever I remember. Someone invited 
held in Sydney. And when I attended and learned of what the organisation was doing, it made me realise pretty quickly that um, a lot of the experiences that I had, I wasn't alone in them. It was a different mindset, a different attitude towards you. Um, often people that shared the same experiences or people that were further ahead of me that could mentor me, so things like that, a lot to learn. And that there were others who had similar uh, problems or challenges and that it was important to be in a position to uh, work as a, a single voice with other blind people uh, to try and um, negotiate solutions to systemic barriers that we faced with regard to transport and education and employment and a whole range of areas and relationships with the blindness service agencies at the time, which were challenging at best. How to use a particular cane technique, um, talking about what it was like to try and find work, how to organise different events. People would often teach me things just without even knowing that they were teaching me and I would always be and still I am always receptive to listening and learning, so you just pick up what you can. And uh, and when you're in a group that are receptive to you, then you can receive a lot in return and give a lot back as well. Its involvement or its growth was different because the Association of Blind Citizens uh, was had individual membership, but then they were a state body, which was a member of a federal body. but. Uh, for BCA, um, you could become a, an individual member and participate right through to the, um, to the national level. There were lots of blind people who were members of both organisations and eventually it became quite a harmonious thing, but it, it didn't start off that way. They, I think I thought it was uh, sort of taking, trying to take over the patch or something. I have joined both of them over the years. In the early days it was BCA, it was very exciting because it was all that big movement of um, oh, that whole movement in the 70s where women lived and everyone was socially kind of quite active then. I joined both because I knew from my school the, the benefit of interacting with other people who are blind or vision impaired. While it's a good thing for, for blind people to go out to sighted schools, they all, it's very important also to remain in what I call their cultural um, environment. You know, blind people with blind people and deaf people with deaf people, etc. can be a very lonely life uh, if you find it difficult to make friends in a sighted environment. At the time in Canberra, where I moved in 1981, there was a move among blind people to form a consumer group. And I and some others thought, why should we go on our own when there's a national group? that we can be part of. And I was very fortunate to be part of the foundation group for the local branch of Blind Citizens Australia, which continues to exist from 1983 until today. I met blind people uh, actively living their lives. Some had gone to university, some were working uh, in, uh, in uh, trades or other activities. So there was starting to be a bit of a breakout from the, the expectation of you know, telephony or, or dark rooms or sheltered workshops. Um, and some of these people were, were doing that. I, I guess they just reinforced my expectation that I could live a, um, 
a quality life as a blind person, that I could uh, enjoy a role in the community, that I could be a contributor to the community, uh, that I could work, that I could pay taxes, uh, and that I could build a family. Uh, you know, I I, um, I saw Murray and Bob Sheng uh, with their their young kids, and I, I saw others, and and this just said to me, well, you know, these guys can do that, so 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 can I. I was the first woman to be secretary, yes. I came into the job in, uh, in 1965 until um, 1974. I, I loved it really um, because it really was, a, it, it gave me the freedom actually to work, um, not quite independently, you know, I wouldn't say that, but you know, rather than just typing other people's letters, things like that. Well, it, it was a five-day-week job, uh, and it was more or less nine to five, you know. Um, and I don't know what you'd call a t typical day because it, it often was as it evolved. But, uh, you know, there was the regular office work. I had an assistant who looked after all the bookkeeping and, and assisted me in various ways that uh, office assistants do. You know, there were... There were whatever was happening to follow up on, letters to write and all that sort of thing and and then often to go out and represent the association uh, at various meetings and uh, um, I held positions on a couple of other committees. At that time, in the early days of my secretaryship, um, the association had a representative on the committee of the Guide Dog Association, as did other uh, charities in that field. But uh, I think after a few years it was felt that the Guide Dog Association had come of age and that wasn't a requirement anymore. Fairly early on, Blind Citizens Australia took that, that approach that it didn't oppose things outright, but rather that the the in the needs of people who are blind and vision impaired needed to be taken into account in in whatever happened. Uh, well, I was there was a lot of uh, things going on. The audible traffic signals, uh, getting those installed, uh, was an important uh, piece of work that advocacy organisations did. Working, negotiating with government, but also lobbying to um, to have the the traffic light crossings, um, uh, the sound made audible. One of the first projects that we got involved in in Victoria was to have audible traffic signals. And interestingly enough, at the same time, a guy by the name of Herschler was, doing, was creating an audible traffic signal in Main Roads Board in New South Wales. So we had these two major traffic organisations looking at something that was going to be of tremendous significance to blind people in making life much more safer for us to cross roads, um, to find street crossings. It has made an enormous difference to the way that blind people can interact with traffic nowadays. And particularly when one thinks that how the traffic has grown since, how forward thinking some of those guys, those engineers were that mm. developed those systems. Even back as far as 1968, they experimented with a, a signal at the uh, corner of uh, the intersection of Pitt Street and Rawson Place in the city, and it was a pretty crude sort of a thing, but uh, it was certainly probably the first, I think it would have been pre-Melbourne, etc. It was 
probably pretty new for people who were totally blind to to cross that intersection unassisted because it was a very busy area. Part of the campaigning was also not just to only put them in but also to have a process be able to be created to be able to report any maintenance issues for them. So, for instance, if you're at a crossing and the lights are just too soft because you need to be able to find them. And it's all right if they're loud on walk, but if they're not audible when they're not on walk, so they're not on walk signal and you can't hear them, you still can't find the traffic light to press the button. So that's something that's ongoing. And, in fact, only they, I used that process only a few weeks ago and it's still working and that took a lot of effort to set up and that's been quite successful as of late. It seems to be working well. There was a Telstra uh, wanted to charge for uh, what were at that stage called 013 calls, which were the calls to directory assistance. And we put the bit of people can't use a phone book, um, which is a free of charge service. We should have uh, exemption from this charge and we succeeded. That was going to have a real disproportionate impact on people who are blind or vision impaired because, of course, we, we couldn't use the telephone book. So if we needed to find out a phone number, we would call 013 to get that number and to charge for that was going to have a significant um, impact on us. And I happen to be um, still working at the Broadcasting Tribunal at that point and... One of my colleagues had moved on to the Public Interest Advocacy Centre and the Blind Citizens Australia Executive Officer at the time, John Simpson, uh, I, I gave him the name of my colleague because I thought that would be a really good uh, resource for us to utilise to try and stop them charging people for um, 013. Uh, it was interesting that the the approach that we took to it was not so much protesting about them charging for it, but that people with print disabilities should be exempted. I was involved uh, when uh, the government looked at reviewing the blind pension in the late 80s. Blind people receive a, a means-test-free, uh, tax-free uh, benefit, a pension, uh, which is now called the Disability Support Pension, but it used to be called the Blind Pension. There were two or three suggestions by government um, prior to budgets, federal budgets, that that benefit might be uh, removed, uh, and so we, we campaigned to, um, to maintain that. And that was a very important funding for us because what it did was it covered a lot of the extra costs that blind people experienced in their lives. You know, we needed to uh, use taxis more often than uh, than public transport if we were going to a new uh, destination. Or we... In early 1994, we made a submission entitled Vision Impaired People and Taxis to the previous Minister of Transport and uh, uh, Barry Chapman and I spoke with the Minister for Transport, spoke to our submission, and we've been working with the government and the departmental officials ever since. Those of us who belong, who are members of the scheme, have the hassle every now and again of getting a sighted person to fill in the order form that's 20 dockets from the back of each uh, taxi transport voucher book. And we have to get a sighted person to fill it in, envelope it, and uh, post it off to the Department of Transport so we can get a new book. But from now on, all, all um, uh, scheme participants will have to do is just <clears throat> ring a particular number, give their name, 
their address and their date of birth for identification purposes for the computer, and a book will be sent to them. Blindness agencies that, uh, like Royal Blind Society, as it then was, used to advertise to raise funds to provide services to people who were blind or vision impaired, but often their advertising had a negative impact on the work that they were doing because blind people would be portrayed as, uh, as um, disadvantaged or uh, unable to do a whole lot of things. The issue of White Cane Day, particularly the publicity about White Cane Day, we were very disappointed at the style of advertising. I think we felt that it has taken us back 30 years. Um, one of the ads that was used was a voiceover speaking about White Cane Day. Um, the TV screen showed uh, a black screen with a few white dashes here and there, indicating to the public that that's how a blind person sees their world. And that reinforced the negative um, stereotypes in the, in the community uh, about people who are blind or vision impaired. We also spoke about the radio advertising. We were certainly disappointed in the style that it took. I think one of the comments were that, well, you only get 15 seconds to do your publicity... Our reply to that was, well, couldn't it have been something educational to the public rather than letting the public think that all those blind people see black and white? We need to look at educating the community, not having people in the community pity us as a group of people with a disability. And I think we were trying to keep the agencies honest because they were being very patronising. Uh, we were involved in campaigns uh, to make uh, the agency fundraising more ethical and not actually doing uh, um, damage to the, to the clients who, who uh, the agencies uh, supported. Well, the Transport and Access Committee, as its name implies, is concerned with making public transport and making the use of public transport easier, more hassle-free and safer for blind people. And also uh, we're concerned with lobbying to make our streets and uh, public buildings easier for blind people to negotiate. Well, it's an issue that's been around for quite some time, but it the process actually started as a result of a, um, a document on trains to the Minister for Transport that the Sydney branch of Blind Citizens Australia produced. And uh, one of the key recommendations in that was that we wanted um, appropriate announcements on trains. Now, the policy at that time of state rail was that there would be announcements, but the pattern of announcements was in essence, that uh, announcements will be made approximately every four stations and, tra and, and stations will be announced in blocks of, say, three or four rather than individually. Uh, we found that wasn't uh, satisfactory to us and all of our approaches to the Minister and so on didn't, wasn't successful in, in having that modified. So we, we actually did a number of things. We, we had uh, as a petition to State Parliament and we actually got quite a good response on that one. But we also lodged a case with myself as the um, person representing or being the complainant with the Anti-Discrimination Board. And what we were asking for was that with announcements, there would be two announcements. The first one, as 
the train leaves the station and again as the station is being approached. Now, the process actually extended over quite a, a lengthy period of time, a matter of a couple of years, as these things tend to do, but we were successful in getting State Rail to agree to what we want in terms of the policy, in terms of the announcements, that there will be the, the two announcements, and that's to cover all city rail services. I followed on from the campaigning of people such as Pat Downey and Barry Chapman. In the mid-2000s, I met with the New South Wales Minister for Transport and told her that if announcements were not made as requested within six months, I would lodge a Disability Discrimination Act complaint every time I rode on a train where no announcement was made. I lodged over 70 such complaints and we attempted to resolve them by conciliation under the Disability Discrimination Act. Sydney Trains would not conciliate with me, so with the support of the Public Interest Advocacy Centre, I took the matter to court. I won the court case, which meant that damages were awarded to me and which forced Sydney Trains to announce each station. And most of the time now, that's what they do. We didn't seem to have that problem in Victoria. Our transport was limited, but it was more accessible. Uh, probably geographically, uh, uh, because we didn't have the, the problems that you have in Sydney. What was it called again? Outlook. Yes, we had a um, program called Outlook. Outlook, that's right, I knew it. Outlook was a weekly radio program produced by the Association in the studio at Shirley House. It was broadcast on 2SER, a community radio station, and then on Radio 2RPH, radio for the print handicapped. It was full of useful information, advocacy news and other topics. I was involved with, a f I had a few things, a few roles in that. Um, one of them was reviewing albums, and I really liked doing that. That was fantastic. But then in the latter years, I was involved in a segment called browsing in the library and what we had to do is present a small portion of a book and then review it and tell it was usually yes it was browsing in Shirley House's library so any book we talked about you could come and and browse and get from Shirley borrow from Shirley House. Radio for the Print Handicapped began in Melbourne in 1982 and was established in Sydney and Canberra in 1983. Its primary purpose was for selections from newspapers and magazines to be read aloud so they could be enjoyed by people with print disabilities. Community broadcast licences were obtained and the service grew in other cities around Australia. Some people did try to get involved in the actual broadcasting uh, aspect of it with less success than we would have liked. I, I mean, my recollection of the issue is that in Melbourne it was very much a blindness-driven process to establish the radio station. In, in Sydney, not so much. It was by a number of very well-intentioned um, sighted people, but, but blind people were, um, in some views, in some characterisations, pushed aside. The push was from some very well-intentioned sighted people and who, who, you know, who put a lot into it, but they would rather... They saw it as doing something for blind people rather than with blind people, which made it very different from Melbourne. Advocacy didn't only occur in the cities. Here's Ian Harrison, president of the Tweed Valley branch of BCA. He was a regular on Soundabout, BCA's quarterly audio newsletter. Jack Evans used to have the pulpit pool up there years ago, and uh, 
No, that, he he died, and they I don't know quite what happened to the porpoise, but they died as well. Someone did, I suppose. And uh, it was it's made into a boat harbour. And they have a, a footpath already around it, but they go for tactile bricks down so that people like us can feel our way around. Well, I think the ACT branch was formed out of. Uh a couple of really important issues, and one was a fundraising issue that was, uh, at the time, was uh, uh, concerning a lot of people in Canberra. And the other issue was uh, the service agency's uh, duplication of services. And uh, both those issues, uh, or both the fundraising issues, probably not so much now, but the issue of um, duplication of services, of course, is now being looked at. Uh, in a, in a rather large way, and there's a rationalisation of services. One of them was in conjunction with New South Wales. We developed a New South Wales ACT directory of services in the mid-90s. That was a very good collaborative pro, uh, project between the Sydney and um, the New South Wales and Canberra branch of Appliances Australia. The United Nations Convention does... One of, one of its um, clauses talks about... Um, participation in the in the democratic process um, and for many many years both blind citizens australia and the the various other blindness agencies around the country including royal blind society now vision australia and, and some of the others but particularly in the early days blind citizens australia um, we argued that we had a right to uh, secret, independent and verifiable voting. So it, it's secret, as everyone else is entitled to. It's independent in, so, in that we can do it ourselves and that we need to be able to verify that how we thought we'd voted is actually how we voted. So there's been advocacy for accessible voting now for oh, probably more than 15 years. Um because initially what, what used to happen is you used to have to go with so, someone sighted or get someone sighted, one of the polling officials, to and you'd tell them how you wanted to vote and have them vote and, and hope that they actually voted how you wanted to. Um, nobody who's not blind would ex think that was reasonable. In, in, the, in the same way that you don't want to give, give away your, your banking pin to somebody. The government particularly uh, with, you know, the advent of the Disability Discrimination Act in 1992 and more recently the United Nations Convention does recognise that it has to do something. In New South Wales, a gentleman named Darren Fittler, who is a totally blind guy who's a lawyer, decided to kind of push the envelope a bit and lodged an, a complaint under the state anti-discrimination law legislation that he was denied a Braille vote uh, in the local government election. And that that is absolutely what spearheaded the development of iVote. And the way that it's been developed to work is sort of in three forms. One of them is that you can log on to a website, uh, conduct your vote that way. The second way is that you log on to an IVR, Interactive Voice Recognition Phone System. And the third option is uh, a human in a call centre. Once upon a time, I used to just have to go with a sighted person and, vo and vote above the line because it was easier for them. Now I can actually vote below the line because I can. Blind Citizens Australia has been a most important organisation to me. I, I, I 
can't say how much in the last 10 years it's meant to me um, since my first convention in Canberra in 1993. Um, all the people I've met and the things I've done and the way it's transformed my view of how the world should be, but also of myself. This podcast featured the voices and stories of Lynn Davis, Barry Chapman, Len Hogg, Naomi Clark, Patrick Downey, Susan Thompson, Graham Innes, David Blythe, Lynn McGregor, Robert Altamore, Sandra Wibberley, Jennifer Parry, Sandy Dark, Ian Harrison and Mari Shang. It was produced by Angela Caterns and edited by Damon Sutton for Blind Citizens Australia. Theme song by Emma Benison. Being blind can create challenges because of the way other people react to it. People who are blind do not need or welcome pity. They may appreciate help at certain times and under certain circumstances, but their lives are as varied as any other people's. They are the same, only different. Cause the winds are changing